what a wonderful promise from the Lord. And it is the promise of the Lord. Well, today we continue our journey through the book of Acts. And as I have said to you, the reason we are going through the book of Acts is to look at the New Testament church that Jesus established to compare our church to that church and ask the question, are we the New Testament church? Now, when Jesus established his church, it's clear that it was committed to evangelism. Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And they were immediately very successful in sharing the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, it says there were 120 believers. Acts chapter 2, there were 3,000 saved. In Acts chapter 4, there were 5,000 men So the Bible tells us that the church grew rapidly after Jesus established it. Tremendous power. As a result of the ministry of the church, the lame could walk, the blind could see, the dead were called forth from the grave, and they were committed to Jesus. When the disciples were called before the authorities and told no longer to preach in the name of Jesus, they said, we must obey God rather than men. So in the New Testament church, they were committed to the Lord regardless as to the cost. But what about the church when it goes through bad times? What about the church when it has to deal with tough times? Take your Bibles, look with me please in Acts chapter 12 beginning in verse number 1. Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but though he was, but thought he was seeing a vision. What about when bad things happen to good people? I know upon saying that, that there are some of you who probably would respond, there is no such thing as a good person. And I understand that and I agree with it. Because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But understand when, for our purposes, at least for today, when I'm talking about good people, I am speaking about moral people, not sinless people. Much like it records in Psalm chapter 125, verse 4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. But, but what, what about those times when good people are treated badly or when bad things happen to good people? 
You see, that's confusing to us. That unsettles us because here's a good person and something bad has happened to that good person. Why does God allow that? I mean, after all, God is sovereign. He is in control. So why then does God allow that? Well, we might ask the question, what is the sovereignty of God? We talk about God being in control. We talk about the sovereignty of God. But what does it mean that God is sovereign? One of the best definitions I've read was given by Bruce Little. He said, sovereignty can best be defined as divine autonomy. Because God is sovereign, he is the supreme, supreme ruler since all his pre, pre-creation and creation choices were not influenced by anyone or anything outside himself. That's a pretty good definition. So we then can define what it means that God is sovereign, but that still is somewhat confusing to us. We do not understand it completely, which is exactly what the Bible says. The scripture says in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God said through the prophet Isaiah, you are never going to fully understand me because I am higher than you, my ways are greater than yours, and my thoughts are greater than yours. So we see here in verse number two, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, why was James martyred? I mean, what had he done? I'm sure that he was a good man. Why did this happen to him? And I don't know the answer to that question. Why was James martyred? I don't know. You see, I ask the question sometimes, Why do Christians in Syria and Egypt and other parts of the country or of the the world, why are they martyred? Why do they suffer when we do not? We have it relatively easy as Christians in America today. So what's the deal? Why do people in other places suffer as Christians when we do not? In verse number three it says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So here we see two good men. James was martyred. Peter was arrested. Why did that happen? Do you ever ask those questions? Why do bad things happen to good people? In the first church that I pastored, I was doing a study through the book of Romans, and it just about drove me nuts. I mean, I got in there and I'm reading all of this about, you know, the predestination, the sovereignty of God and all those things. And I thought, what in the world? How do I answer these questions? And it really was a struggle for me. It really, really was. And then I came to a verse there, Romans 11:33, that sort of became the answer for me. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I do not understand God. 
Now, I know that there are those who think that they do. I'm not one of them. God is above me. I try my best to understand as much as I can, but there are some questions to which I have no answer. You see, the sovereignty of God is mysterious. We don't fully understand it, but I nevertheless believe that God has a purpose in the events of life. And if you look there in verse 24, it says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. You see, I believe, though I cannot answer the why, I believe that God had a purpose in the death of James. I believe that God had a purpose in the imprisonment of Peter. And I believe that he had a purpose in the persecution of the church because the New Testament church went through this time of persecution. And so the Bible says there in Acts chapter 8, verses, verse 1b and verse 4, And on that day, this is about the New Testament church, And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. Good people persecuted. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Why? Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So I believe that even though I don't understand the sovereignty of God, I don't understand the ways of God, I believe that God has a purpose in what he does. Now, God is sovereign. It is my belief that the sovereignty of God is balanced with the free will of man. Paul Mosey said, we come into this world head first and go out feet first. In between, it is all a matter of balance. God is sovereign, which means that his plans will be accomplished. For instance, in salvation. Now, in his sovereignty, we are told in Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. All right, now that is God's sovereign plan for salvation. In his sovereignty, he determined the means of salvation, and he said it is in him. That is the means of salvation. My friend, salvation is not in the Baptist church. Salvation is not in the baptistry. Salvation is not in good works. Salvation is in him. God in his sovereignty has chosen the means of salvation that it is in him. And the Bible says before the foundation of the world was laid that he had the plan. And the purpose for that is that we might be what? Holy, which means set apart. Now that is God's plan. He has planned that those who are in him. Now listen, in him are what? Holy, set apart to him. Set apart from the world, set apart from sin, set apart to him. That they might be holy and blameless. Now, God in his sovereignty planned our salvation, but he allows us in our free will to participate in the choice. The Bible says in Acts 2.21, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be Saved. Now, what I want you to understand is that in the sovereignty of God, salvation is available to all, but it comes to those who call upon his name. Did you see that? Salvation is available to everyone, 
but it comes to those who call on his name. His sovereignty, his plan of salvation is balanced with the free will of man that you choose as to whether or not you're going to receive it. So God has provided salvation. You choose if you will receive it. Now, I believe that that also is balanced in life itself because there's so much about life that's confusing to me that I, I, I really don't understand. I, you know, I think a lot about things that happen and why they happen and, and uh, keep me awake at night and so forth. Just like some of you do. But I believe that the sovereignty of God in life is balanced with the free will of man in life. Now, I've almost come to this conclusion, I, not, not totally, but I've almost come to this conclusion about life. I'm not ready to defend it at this point, but I've almost come to this point. That in life, God determines the quantity of life. In other words, what I, I, I mean by that is that... Uh, there is a calendar up there somewhere and God has a date circle and he says, on this date, Wendell's coming home. Now, the reason I have come to that place is because I have seen old people die and, you know, that is not real troublesome. Unless it's you, but, you know. <laughs> I've seen young people die and I think, oh, what's that all about? I, I, I've seen people who are good die and people who are we would say, comparatively speaking, bad died. You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. I said, well, why is that? What's that all about? I mean, this was really a good guy. I wish he would have stayed around. This was really a good girl. I wish she would have stayed around. What is this? And so I've concluded, almost, that maybe God determines the quantity of life. And I think there's some scripture that we might back that up. In Psalm 90, 12, he says, so teach us, to number our days. Our days are numbered. And then in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once. So we have an appointment. I have an appointment. I have an appointment with death, just as you do. So I've almost concluded that God has determined the quantity of my life, that there is a time when I'm going to die. Now, you may or may not agree with that, and I'm not going to debate it with you because I don't know. I'm just telling you that I've almost come to that place. God then determines the quantity of life, but he allows us to some extent to determine the quality of life. Now, I want you to think about it. I'm not, you know, I'm not there, but think about it. God determines the quantity. To some extent, we determine the quality. Now, it could be that you would say, okay, if, if God has a date when I'm going to die, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what I'm going to do. I'm going to, get on, I'm going to get on my motorcycle and ride with Dennis, and we're going to go 100 miles an hour right down the road. Okay. Because I'm going to die when I'm 80 anyway. But you might live the next 30 years as a quadriplegic. You see, all right, God has, a, 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 has determined that I'm going to die when I'm 80, let's say. And so I'm not going to worry about exercise, and I'm not going to worry about my diet, and I'm not going to worry about taking care of myself, because I'm going to live to be 80 anyway. Okay. But you might live 30 or 40 years sick. So I've just about determined that maybe God determines the quantity of my life, and he allows me to some extent to determine the quality of life, and that is the balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Now, even though I do not understand it, I trust God and his sovereignty. 
As someone said, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Now, persecution and suffering are inevitable. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what it says. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in verse number 1 it says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Biden said the word mistreat means to disturb, trouble, to wear down with toil. So the Bible says that he mistreated them. So he killed James with a sword and he imprisoned Peter. Why did he do that? These were not bad people. Why did he do that? Well, look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was his motivation. Albert Barnes wrote, it was not from a sense of right. It was not to do justice and to protect the innocent. It was not to discharge the appropriate duties of a magistrate and a king, but it was to promote his own popularity. Why did he do it? It was a political decision. He wanted to be liked by the people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote, This king was by nature very beneficent and liberal in his gifts and very ambitious to please the people. He took delight in giving and rejoiced in living with good reputation. So why did he do that? Why did they suffer? Because there was a king on the throne who wanted to be popular. He saw that it pleased people. And so they suffered because he wanted to be popular. And the Bible says that the people prayed, the church prayed. In verse number 5, it says, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. You know, folks, when the circumstances are not favorable, when we're going through difficult times, then the church should surround each other in prayer. Barnes says, in scenes of danger, there is no other refuge. Prayer. I had a friend years ago, Sammy Davis, he pastored... Um, the Fellowship Church in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. And wonderful guy. But we were talking one time about some of these things. And he said, when things get impossible for us, they are just right for God. I wrote that down because I liked it. This is probably 30, 35 years ago. When things get impossible for us, they are just right for God. Now, it was an impossible situation for Peter. James was dead. Peter was in prison. He was surrounded by 16 guards. So it was a bad circumstance for Peter, but things were just right for God. You've read the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were placed in the burning, fiery furnace. The flames were licking all around them. It was a hopeless situation, but it was just right for God. When Daniel was in the lion's den, there were hungry lions with gaping mouths all around him, but it was just right for God. And my friend, maybe today you're going through a time when your circumstances would be hopeless or helpless, unfavorable. Perhaps you've gone to the doctor and he has come out and said to you, 
There is no hope. There's nothing that I can do. Well, I want you to know that it's just right for God. Perhaps today your marriage is falling apart and you have little hope of reconciliation. There's no future. You don't love each other. And the only way out you see is divorce. Let me say to you, it's just right for God. It could be today that some of you parents say, my, my, my children are such a disappointment and they're out in the world, they're out in sin and there's nothing I can do. I've prayed, I've done everything that I know to do and it's a hopeless situation. Well, it's just right for God. It's just right for God. Peter's circumstances were hopeless, but the Bible says that the church prayed. In verse number five, in verse number five it says, the prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. The word there means intense, steady, ardent prayer. I mean, they were praying. They were serious about it. Peter was in prison. James was dead. And the church was praying fervently. And the Bible says many of them were down in verse number 12. It says uh, many were gathered together and were praying. They all got together and they were praying. And I want you to know, even though the circumstances might appear to be hopeless, when the church prays, God is always the victor. And you'll see in verse number 6, And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. You know, I read that. I'm always mystified by it. James is dead. Peter is in prison. Sixteen guards around four at a time. Peter's asleep. I've been calling my lawyer. Wouldn't you? I mean, he's sound asleep. But Peter, I noticed that Peter always had such peace, he could sleep anywhere. In Acts chapter 10, it tells about him being in Joppa, and, and he's at the house of Simon the Tanner. So he goes up on the roof to pray. And while he's up there praying in the midst of his prayer, right in the middle of his prayer, he went to sleep. I, said, I know some of y'all are at peace. I said, I said, you sleep when I preach, but... But he, he's, and then on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he's with Jesus during the time of Transfiguration, you know what Peter was doing? He was asleep. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying, pouring his heart out to the Father, what was Peter doing? He was asleep. I mean, he was at peace. It didn't make any difference what the circumstances were. He could sleep anywhere. So the church prays, Peter sleeps, and God rescues him. An angel woke him, verse number 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly, and his chains fell. He must have been sleeping solidly. I mean, an angel had to strike him to wake him up. He is so sound asleep, the angel had to hit him to get him to awake. It's like some of you mothers getting your kids up in the morning. Had to hit him to get him up. And then verse 8, instructing the angel, said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. He did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He told him what to do. And then the angel led him out. In verse number 9, And he went out and continued to follow. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second gate, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So, 
So we see that God said the church is praying. Peter's in prison. The church is praying. And God rescues him. Sends an angel to rescue him. Well, Peter did his part. You know, God does his part. We do our part. Peter did his part. In verse number 13, it says, And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So Peter knew where the church was meeting. He knew where they were praying. He knew who the people were. So he went to the house where they were praying. We see a little bit of doubt with which we can identify in verse 15. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. So Rhoda opens the door. Peter's out there. The church is inside praying for his release. And she says, Peter is at the door. They say, you're nuts. He's not out there. He's in prison. That's why we're up here praying. Asking God to release him. It must have been a Baptist church. That's all I can. They said, no, he, it must be his spirit or something. But it's not him. He is in prison. And that's why we're here praying. But, but I like this, verse number 16. But Peter continued knocking. He kept on knocking. Isn't it interesting that it took a miracle to get him out of prison? And took another miracle to get him into church. God did his part. Peter did his part. Faith can trust the sovereignty of God even if we don't understand it. We trust him. But then there's another character, Herod. He did not walk in the sovereignty of God. In fact, I think that he elevated himself and his free will. And I think that that is the perversion of Herod here. Because, see, there is this balance, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man... He ignored completely the sovereignty of God and did what he wanted to do. We see his pride in verse number 21. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. A very proud man. Again, Josephus, the ancient historian, Jewish historian, wrote, after his third year of rule over Judea, Agrippa came to Caesarea to celebrate games in honor of Caesar. Speaking of this verse that I just read. On the day of the second games, he entered the theater at dawn, dressed in a garment of woven silver, which gleamed in the rays of the light of the rising sun. His flatterers at once started addressing him as a god. May you be gracious to us, they shouted. And if up to now we feared you as a man, from now on we agree that you are more than a mortal. Verse 23 says that he died. How can we accept the sovereignty of God? In a scriptural way. I mean, that's that's what we want to do. God is sovereign. God is God. I don't completely understand it. But God is sovereign. How then do I accept the sovereignty of God? Well, first of all, repent of pride that leads us from God. See, that's what Herod should have done. Very proud. And his pride kept him from the sovereignty of God. Repent of any pride in your life. That leads you away from God. Don't take yourself too seriously. Because God really is in control. 
His will ultimately will be done. So don't take yourself too seriously. Compare yourself to Jesus, not to me or someone else. And that will bring humility to you if you compare yourself to Jesus. And then follow his example who took on the form of a servant. So bad things happen to good people. They do. Bad things happen. However, as we trust God, ultimately, we will triumph as we walk with him. You see, folks, God has planned for your salvation, but he allows you to choose as to whether or not you will receive Jesus as your Lord. Salvation is in him. That's the plan of God. Salvation is in him. And if you are willing to commit your life to Jesus Christ, then he is willing to forgive you of every sin and you become a child of God. But that's your decision. All those who call upon the name of Jesus. Our gracious Father, we come to a time of invitation asking, Lord, that you speak to our hearts. Father, I know that there are some here who are really suffering going through difficult times. Help them to know that though it seems impossible for them, it's just right for God. Lord, I pray for those whose lives you are speaking today, that they might be willing to accept the grace of God, be forgiven and become children of God. Bless this invitation time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing. An invitation is extended. If you're here without Christ, I pray that you'll commit your life to him today. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. I hope you'll come. Stand with me, please, as we stand. They sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.